this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining me today. I just finished talking with Ellen Widmer about her new book, Fiction's Family, John Shi, John Kai, and the Business of Women in Late Qing China. This came out with Harvard University Press in 2016. And as you can already hear from the title, this is a book that is about many different kinds of historical objects at the same time. It's a book that follows a particular family. John Shi and John Kai are brothers that are part of this larger unit. Um, and the book looks at their parents, it looks at some of their children, and it looks at the importance of um, and the nature of their family linkages over the course of the chapters of the book that you'll hear us talk about in the conversation to come. It's also about the relationship between family and fiction. Um, and one of the things that you'll hear us talking a lot about is kind of the nature of the kind of work that it takes to understand fiction as part of history, to uh, try to study fiction as part of history, and the ways that um, the particular kinds of sources and the ways of creating a conversation among those sources that Ellen uses in the book, um, they're very, very interesting, I think, for any of us um, who are in the business of or who are interested in the process of telling stories about and with the past. It's also in particular about the attitudes of both of these um, major men, both of these uh, brothers, John Shi and John Kai, to issues of gender and reform, women as objects, women as subjects, women as readers, um, women as writers in the late Qing period. And so this is a book that um, I think is going to be of wide interest to anyone interested in um, or working in the history of gender, in particular, the history of women and gender um, in the modern period and in the late Qing in China in particular. So there's a lot here. Um, it's a really fascinating study and I will let you get to the conversation. Um, and just to say, thanks very, very much uh, for your support of the channel, for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Ellen Widmer about her new book, Fiction's Family. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Ellen, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today and for giving us a great book to talk about. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's start with the um, traditional question for the podcast. What brought you to the study of China and why the fiction and the drama of China in particular as your area of academic study? Oh, this is a hard one for I me. I know, it's, it's a huge question. <laughs> um, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I was just in <clears throat> Russia for the um, European Association of Chinese 
studies meeting and remembered at that time that many years ago, as an undergraduate, I had been interested in Russia. I had no way of studying Chinese at that point because there wasn't any at my my college. But uh, I had gotten very interested in Russia and taken gone on to take three years. And the meeting I just went to was in Russia, and all that came flowing back. But what happened subsequently is that I married my my husband, who I'm no longer married to, but he was in East Asia. And really, I just trotted along behind him as he went off to write his dissertation in Taiwan. And I was I was completely captivated by it. Uh, this was and by then I already had two kids and this and that. But but it was a very strange odyssey. But that's where I ended up. So the book that we're talking about today follows uh, f- what you call fiction's family, right? This is the title right. of the book. And you describe um, in the first chapter the three different, at least three different reference that fiction's family has in the book. There's a particular family of um, two figures who we'll talk about at some length in the hour to come, Wang Qingdi and John Sidzong. And then uh, their sons, two in particular, um, who uh, also were writers. So there's that family. There's also a fictional family from one of the sons' novels, um, and also a family, if in quotes, of genres that helped shape the novels of the other sons. So there's a lot of ways of thinking about family in this context and its relationship to fiction. Um, And the book focuses on one particular group of people in order to do that work. So this is all as a practice to ask, how did you come to this particular project um, and why these particular figures as a focus for this monograph? As I say in my acknowledgments, a lot of it had to do with my advisor, Patrick Hannon at Harvard, and he was interested in the older of the two sons. He was not interested in the parents or the younger son. But it was through that, that beginning that I started looking around. I just wanted to know more about the area that they lived in, which was not Shanghai. I'm used used to thinking of the late Qing in terms of Shanghai, and this was somehow going to be a late Qing project. But uh, having it set in Chujo uh, made it interesting to me. So I I just followed along. It's sort of beginning with my advisor's footsteps, but then I took it well beyond what he had intended in his own work. And, and, And he told me, fortunately, that he didn't intend to go any farther with it. So that left me a clear field. Great. So let's actually get right into it then. Um, We've already um, talked a little bit about the fact that there are some main figures that anchor this study. And in the first chapter, we briefly meet them. And we'll talk a lot about them um, in the chapters to come, or a lot more. One of the figures is Wang Qingdi. Now, she is a wife um, in a marriage relationship that we'll talk about, and she had published a collection of poems known as Collected Poems and Songs from Weaving Cloud Tower. So for listeners who have never heard of her, um, can you tell us a little bit about her? What do we need to know about her as a figure in order to set the stage for understanding um, what's going to be important about her in the book? Um, There... You know, I had spent a lot of time in my career studying traditional writers, women writers of the upper classes. That's a whole other area of my work, quite apart from the fiction and drama emphasis. And she was very much that. She was very much an upper class woman, although living in a remote part of China. Um, and she, but many, two or three things at least stood out for me with her 
One was that she lived through the Taiping Rebellion, which was a horrific time for many women, and many women committed suicide because they felt they had been violated sexually or they were afraid they might be violated sexually. She didn't suffer that experience, but she left poems about what it was like to go through the Taiping Rebellion, and that stood out in my mind. Another big thing for me, well, apart from the fact of, of her two sons, was the uh, her interest. Her st- I couldn't believe it when I when I finally found it. Her interest in publishing in new style publications. So Shan Bao, being a modern, um, well, modern for its day publication, put out in Shanghai starting in 1872, carries not uh, Shan Bao itself does not, but the supplements to that newspaper carry some of her poems. And I found that quite extraordinary because I didn't know of anyone, any woman in that conservative mindset that would have wanted to publish in New Style publications. But I did find out subsequently that there were quite a few. There were actually quite a few that, that went from their conservative state of, of being um, before the journal began to publish into a, a mode of publishing in that, that way. But I hadn't I hadn't thought it was possible. I had I had no idea. So I think those two are probably the most outstanding. Well, and thirdly, one a point I emphasize quite a bit in the book is that she seemed to be very unhappy. And mm-hmm. uh, in, in certain in the public in the in the poems that she published, you don't get that she was very upbeat in those poems. But or or else she was mourning the death of somebody else. But she wasn't really talking about herself. But in the poems that she in which she talks about herself there is a good deal of unhappiness, uh, particularly because, her, if, if I judged correctly, because her husband was absent quite a bit, and that seemed to be a big problem for her. And when you look at his poems in juxtaposition, you, he too suffered a good deal from the from the Taiping Rebellion and, and many other things, but he managed to sort of leave Chujo and go off to other parts of China and, and have a lovely time with his friends. So it didn't seem entirely parallel. So those were, I guess those are the three things that caught my eye. Right. Um, Excellent. So this is already taking us really nicely into the first couple of chapters in the book. And I just want to pull some of the threads um, that you've already mentioned um, in just even talking about Wang. So you've mentioned the importance of Chuzhou as a locality, and this becomes really, really important throughout the book. Uh, yeah. And you, you talk about this uh, a whole lot, uh, and we'll return to it um, over the course of the chapters. Is there anything in particular that you'd like listeners to understand about uh, Chuzhou as a locality, right? And this becomes important not just um, because of the geographical nature of Chu or the understanding Chuzhou as a geographical space, but it helps us, I think, also just, again, from the perspective of one reader to understand the way you're using locality in the book, right? The, the family yeah. is a locality, Chudo is a locality. So can you talk a little bit about, um, for you, what's important uh, about Chujo as a locality and in relation to how you're thinking about and using locality in the book? Chujo is, is a backwater, and it's upriver from, from Shanghai. It takes... 10 days to get by, by boat, 10 days to get from Chuzhou to Shanghai. And um, that means, in addition just to having it be far away, that developments that are taking place in Shanghai, such as the end of foot binding, do not take place in Chuzhou until 
quite a bit later. And you can see all of that unfolding in the daughter of one of the two brothers that writes fiction when she talks about how she talks about exactly that, how far behind Zhuzhou was from the rest of not from the rest of China, really, but from from Shanghai, which was the, the leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, in fact, I think you could say we could really say that Chujo is more typical and Shanghai is more atypical or Chujo is more Chinese and Shanghai is more international. We could put it in those terms. But the, uh, the, for the two young men growing up, it was very tempting to leave Chujo and go to Shanghai, and, which both of them did. The uh, older of the two eventually came back home to, to Chujo, whereas the younger one stayed in Shanghai for the rest of his life. But the juxtaposition of the two cities is, is very, was very interesting to me. Even when one of them lived in Shanghai, he would, would go back to Chujo. And even when he was staying in Chujo, he might go back to Shanghai. The, 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 both brothers carried the two locations in their hearts and minds uh, throughout my, my acquaintance with them. Now, one of the things, um, or another thing that you mentioned that I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about has to do with something that um, is really, really strikingly important throughout the book, and that is the way that you're using your source base to tell this story. Um, it's really interesting. I think there's a lot of um, there's a, a lot to be learned um, f- for readers from how you're using your sources, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that. So you talked about um, Wang being relatively unhappy. And in the second chapter, you talk about the context of uh, her marriage, right? Her husband having left at some point, and it seems like in the course of their marriage, there's a kind of initial adjustment period, as you put it, some good times in, in what seems to have been a kind of companionate marriage, and then lots of not-so-good times, right? Jan le- leaves for a post away from Wang, and the marriage seems to have deteriorated. Now, we know this in part from reading their poems, and this this is a really interesting, I think, methodological point of um, engagement that we can talk about, uh, in part because it's not at all self-evident how one reads a poetical corpus um, for evidence of biographical information, right? This is something that's, uh, I think, a really interesting methodological problem. So what I'd like um, to ask you to talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, is how you worked with the surviving poems of both husband and wife in order to get at um, some way of understanding their marriage, um, their states of mind, and, and really their biographical kind of backgrounds here? That's a very complicated question, <clears throat> and it would take me a long time to answer it well. But in brief, each one of them had two, really two stages in publication. In Wang Qingdi's case, she did publish her poems as they stood as of 1858, uh, 50, excuse me, 1857. And then she, as far as I know anyway, she didn't publish any more poems, uh, but, but except, except the ones that she published in Shenbao and its, its associated uh, journals. But Others did survive, and a family member much, much later in the 1960s copied them all down by hand. And I noticed a distinct shift between the poems in the first printed collection and the ones that were hand copied by the relative. They sounded fairly upbeat. There was lots on the children, even though it was a, a rough time with the Taipings coming and going. It was a family time, and that seemed to be what, what she wanted. Uh, in the, it's in the later poems that she talks a good deal about 
about the loneliness of her of her cottage off all off by itself with the rain on the wutong trees and that kind of thing she sounded terribly alone once in a while you see a poem to to her she didn't write any surviving poems to her younger son but to the older son there are several poems and those sound maybe a bit happier but it is in that that division between the first set of poems and the second that i i i came up with this hypothesis about the marriage then when you look at at the husband's poems his his publication history is rather similar he has a a, a published collection that may have actually come out in parallel with hers around the same time but i think it was a little later 1860 and that is is a longer collection of poems and they're also a lot more difficult than hers i couldn't read many of them i really couldn't read by myself i needed help um and and then by sort of a not exactly a miracle but by a lot of sleuthing i did find a whole second collection of his poems that had been written there there should altogether be 10 sections and right now all i have is 8 it's the the 5 and 6 that are missing but i don't think i'm missing that much the the last four sections were miss miss catalog in a library in china and uh, i figured that out eventually and thanks very much to the help of a colleague at fudan they got uh, i was able to get a copy and it's it's almost the inverse of her poems in that the first published set are full of despair about his career and about the uh the typings and whatever else and the second set are really rather fun there he's having a good time with a lot of his friends so it was by putting sort of a and b together in each of the two ca- cases that i came up with the hypothesis great so understanding the parents work um and sort of the parents relationship as we uh you know can glean it from this work becomes really important uh, later on in the book because it's used as background to understand the work of their sons now the book uses the broad range of these sons writings and these are two uh, of seven children that this couple had in order to contextualize their reformist works um, and it uses the novel of one of them to understand the fiction of the other among other things so this is a really interesting method in juxtaposing and putting into conversation different kinds of sources at a different um, not only generic but also um, epistemic levels in order to create this story throughout the book you talk about the nature of the sources that you used to understand this uh, this network right these uh, the relation chips between these different kinds of families that emerge from these works. So let's talk a little bit about that because I think as we were talking before we started recording um you were saying this book is as much about the sources, right, as it is about these families. Mm-hmm. For you, what are the particular strengths and challenges of the working of this source base and were there any particular moments or especially notable aspects of these sources that stick out for you in the research process? Again, it's a complicated question. Um I'm full of those. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Um one thing we have to remember is that the older brother is 12 years younger than the younger brother so he's almost he's not a generation older but let's say half a generation and uh, it's funny though in in the older brother's case we actually have somewhat better material about about him he has the one novel that contains a family very much like his own one that goes through the typing rebellion and for him the typing rebellion is the the 
the sort of moment of awakening when he when he realized when the characters realize how bad some of the old um, Chinese habits were the examination system, the bomb foot, and uh, opium. Those three things are all he all he realizes all of those things. And his family maybe maybe is an exaggeration of his own family. We have no proof at all that opium was a factor in the real family, but in the fictional family it was. Who knows what the real real reality was? But in the older brother's case, what was what was really helpful? Well, first of all, he had written one other sort of uh, unpublished narrative about a um, kind of a massacre of of an official in connection with the Boxer Rebellion, and that that gives some insight into his his thoughts and his life, and it it contextualizes the fiction too because it shows how idealistic the fiction is. The the monograph on the massacre was not idealistic at all. It was never published. Uh, but the local history was of great use to me for both of the brothers, but particularly the older brother, because after a while in his life and his career, the older brother gave up his life in Shanghai, went back to Chuzhou, even though he did return sometimes. He went back and lived, basically lived in Chuzhou. And there's a good deal about him in the local history. He was an important local educator, and we can find out quite a bit about it. Um, I learned from all of that how to read a local history. It's not so easy. You have to, have it, the story of a person's life is broken up and it's sort of distributed among many sections. So that was, I mean, his, the story of John Shi, the older brother, is is the no, is his novel and his his writing about the massacre and but in large measure to do with with what the local history had to say about it, and then beyond that there were some writings of two of his children, both of whom were progressives, uh, and that was that added to what I had to say about him. All of that only added up to one chapter, and I had three, ended up with three chapters on John Kai, the younger brother, and I've just finished telling you how how there wasn't very much about him in the local history, right. which which there wasn't. But um, I was able to put together a few things. He 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 did write some some sketches of the courtesan quarters, several several of them. Those were probably the best and most interesting source about him. I didn't really have lo- much material from local history. I had some, just a little bit. Uh, he too, he, the younger brother too, had helped his brother to found schools and among other things to kick monks out of their temples. They needed places to have their schools. So they would think of pretexts. Uh, for example, the monks were drowning girls or something like that. And they would kick the monks out and take the building over for the school. That kind of thing he did help with. But it was mostly his novels, of which there were basically three that I worked on, and that that told me a fair amount about him. But I think much more of the courtesan sketches, because there he talks about himself, his life in Shanghai, his life with the courtesans, and his various thoughts on foot binding and things like that. Then sort of miraculously, and this has to do with internet searching, I discovered that he also was a journalist uh, for a newspaper in Hankou. And that was a city completely different from the other two. He was not Shanghai and not, not Chuzhou. Here he is in Hankou. And he's talking there in his editorials and his other pieces about himself as a, sort of as if he were a native of Hankou, which I found rather amusing when he wasn't at all. But in any case, it was the, the sort of, the, 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 I don't think that that material from Hanko really added very much biographically, but it gave some sense of what his views were. 
I guess. Great. Um, so the book actually includes a chapter on each one of these kinds of materials that John Kai, this younger brother, um, produced. Uh, and we'll talk about those briefly in turn. There's a chapter on his life and courtesan sketches. There's a chapter that looks at his novels. And there's a chapter that looks at him as a journalist. And one of the really interesting things, um, uh, or rather interesting points that I think you're making here in the course of these chapters um, is that there's no... I, you can learn a lot when you juxtapose these kinds of materials that you, you know, don't have access to if you're just looking at one kind of source. But at the same time, there's no real John Kai, right? There's no real um, singular, complete picture of a person that comes out of even this juxtaposition. So there's um, there's some again interesting methodological points that come out and conceptual points that come out of the way that you're um, using sources, and I think a really really interesting way. So let's get into the brothers. Um, we've talked a little bit about the parents and the family, and we've introduced the brothers a little bit, but let's get into them in more detail. Chapter three focuses on John Shi, the eldest son um, of this couple and the eldest um, son of their seven children. Now it looks at not just his life, but also his writings, and it focuses on his only novel, Love Among the Courtesans. This is a novel that, among other things, reflects upon um, some social evils, right? Or, or as the book calls them, social evils, opium, bound feet, and the eight-legged essay being um, among the most prominent. So for listeners, can you introduce this novel since it's so prominent in the analysis of the book? Um, what's for you uh, most important for us to understand about the nature of this novel and the work that it does for us in understanding something about this brother? Well, and here I go back to the work of Patrick Hannon, who, before I began anything on the project, noted that that novel had been written for a fiction contest that had been organized by a Western missionary, John Fryer, in, in Shanghai. And there, it, as it happens, now some other novels from that contest have turned up. I think quite a few have turned up in Berkeley, uh, in the library in Berkeley. But I don't know, I know very little about the other ones. But the, the terms of the contest were that what any novel submitted had to go, had to raise doubts or had, had to critique the three things you just mentioned, the, the, the opium, the bound foot, and the eight-legged essay. And, what I found interesting about that is that that John Shi manages the the he, his novel was written in 1897 and the Taiping Rebellion had been many decades earlier, but somehow John Kai manages to switch the times the time around so that it's practically a contemporary novel of his own day uh, on why these three things are wrong. But the reason, as I, I've sort of said earlier, the reason they turn out to be wrong is because of the Taipei Rebellion, which establishes, well, if you take the case of women, that they can't run away from the Taipings, and it's only women with unbound feet, such as maids, who can who can actually run away. So that makes a clear point in favor of unbound feet. And then there'll be a somebody is consuming opium all the time and can't function in in, a, in another way. The, the Taipings. What is kind of ironic is the Taipings themselves were against all of these 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 evils. So that is the Taipings were very much against uh, opium. But it was a, a a trick that John John Chi had to play to make it seem as though even though he opposed the Taipings, he he also opposed the three evils. Anyway, he pulled it all off, and the novel makes sense. Um, 
and I don't know what else to say about about it. Uh, was there something else I should say? Oh no, I, I was going to um, actually just follow up by um, just kind of asking you to talk a little bit about deriving biographical information from the novel, right? This is something that you actually talk about. Um, you tell us right. here in this chapter, right, that he's using his own family history to inform his novel's treatment of family. Yeah. And, and we see how the concerns of his novel are later extended into other work that he's doing in the field of education later. So right. um, I would just like to hear, a, um, you know, a little bit about what you think about using a novel or this novel in particular as that kind of source, um, the, you know, in terms of your, your process and the methodology and the particular challenges there? I don't claim that the novel in the, the family in the novel mm -hmm. truly represents his own family in every way. I, I don't think so because, or, or, or I think it might be the case, but I just have no way of knowing. Mm -hmm. But by looking at the poems that his parents uh, wrote, while the Taiping Rebellion was underway, and also in looking at, at poems that his father wrote about his very young son, uh, the same person, the same person who later wrote this novel, at a, at a young age who could write so well, I think there is reason to project, and that's all I try to do. I don't insist that I'm right about how the family in the novel relates to the real family, but I just, I just attempted to project what I thought... Uh, must be going on. I also think that the sense of terror about the Taipings that that comes across in John Shi's novel has a lot of resonance with the sense of terror that one finds in the parents' poems about that event, especially the mothers. Um, I, I think that that there's got to be some correlation there. He was old enough. I don't remember now. I don't remember now exactly, but it was he was something like eight, maybe, when the Taipings come and came, and they came and they went. That was the other thing they would they would come uh, one one thing, I mean just a tiny point but but we look at our history books and we're told the Taiping Rebellion went from X to Y but from the point of view of this family there were rumors that they might be coming and so then they would flee they would flee to a nearby village or they would fl flee to Hangzhou or something and then it would turn out they hadn't they weren't coming after all so they go back home but the the long series of years where the Taipings might come or might not come or where, when even after they'd been defeated, there were still remnants of them around who were still dangerous. A lot of that comes out in the novel and seems to be a parallel to what we find in the parents' poems. That I, I would not go so far as to say that I absolutely was, am sure that I deduced the, you know, the, a close correlation between the, the fictional family and the real family. I think that that was... Only I tried to make it very clear. I I didn't know for sure what I was talking about, but I I thought I would give it a try. I mean, for example, Wang Qingdi had a very a successful father. He'd done very well on the examinations, and in the novel, the father is not the the wife's father, but it's the the husband's father. So there's a lot of switching that went around. But I think a family with a strong patriarch uh, in residence could be a parallel between the fictional group and and the the and, and John John C's own family. I mean, this is actually one of the things that I really um, appreciated about the book is that you do make it very, very clear throughout that you're not saying X caused Y, right? You're not no. saying, and, and the book is very, very clear about that. And I think um, for me, and I think for listeners and readers, perhaps who are interested in um, historiography and methodology and how we tell the stories that we tell, this is one of the real contributions of the book is that it's 
giving us a way and a model, right, for thinking about and practicing uh, how to tell a story by looking for resonances and parallels and correlations. And it's very, very clear, just to underline what you just said, um, that you're not saying explicitly, this definitely caused that. And that's actually, I think, one of the reasons it's so interesting and so kind of methodologically fruitful to think with. So in um, the context of looking at John Shi, we also learn a little bit about what happened. Um, as I just mentioned, after he writes this novel, um, he becomes a leading proponent of new style education in Chujou. And you talk also in this chapter, and I'll just mention this, um, and then we can move on to the other brother, about the way his educational reform um, you know, extended the concerns um, that he was writing about in his novel, and about the way in turn, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, the work of his children um, in turn extended the concerns that we see of his life. Both of them um, are really formative in um, the natural foot movement. Um, one of them founds uh, Chujo's first natural foot society, and the daughter that I think you mentioned a little bit before is also very active in this movement. So again, um, there's a lot more in this chapter that readers um, will find if they're particularly interested in this figure. But then we move to the set of three chapters about the other brother. This is the third son, Zhang Kai. Chapters four through six focus on him. Now, you talk here about the fact that he uses lots of pen names, so it's actually kind of difficult um, to find out a whole lot about him, right? Um, We know um, apparently next to nothing about his own family, right? Um, Except that he didn't marry. Is that that right? No, he did marry. uh, The the father has one letter to him about having married. And I don't know, but the the wife doesn't seem to be there by the time he gets to Shanghai. I I don't know what's going on. But we know very little about his family. Right. Um, Now, one of the interesting, again, methodological things that comes out of the treatment of John Kai is that um, it becomes very clear that methods of book history, you know, looking very carefully at covers and seals on some books, become a really important way to derive authorship um, from some of these works. And then... um, by extension, to put them into conversation as works of John Kai um, and, you know, as works that are informing the broader story. So uh, three cheers for book history here. <laughs> put a plug in for that. Okay, so chapter four introduces both what we know about his life, but also what we know about his courtesan sketches. Right. Okay, so let's just kind of dive into that. What are courtesan sketches for listeners who may not be familiar with that kind of a, um, a text, a genre? And you talk about some of the ways that his courtesan sketches actually are changing over time. Um, so um, what's a courtesan sketch or, or what are his courtesan sketches and what are some of the most important ways they change and, and why is, are, are those changes important um, for the story you're telling? Well, the courtesan sketch is, they can be very brief. They can be less than a page mm-hmm. or they could be three pages. Maybe they're not long and they're not fictional. They're an effort to present a courtesan uh, in terms of what she does well, what she looks like, um, maybe a little bit about how he met her or how a friend met her, maybe a little bit about her, how her some romance that she was in that didn't go very well, that kind of thing. Um, the, the tone of them is much more, I don't know, pessimistic or melancholy maybe than the fiction. The fiction, well, we'll get to the fiction in a minute, but but even his brother's fiction, which we've already finished talking about, is very, very upbeat. And his is, um, 
his is not, I wouldn't call the courtesan sketches upbeat. The first uh, set of them is, I think, his best set, and, and I think it's just the best written. And he goes along promising that he's going to write more sets and more sets, but he only comes up that turns out um, a, a little bit more in this in this genre, but still some of those are very interesting. Um, and he he kind of interjects a reform at, at the beginning of the courtesan sketches. He has no interest in reform. Reform is is paramount in his fiction, but not in the courtesan sketches at all. He's just enjoying their beauty and their their talent, and and even enjoying their melancholy and his own melancholy. I mean, it's sort of an emotional. Genre. It's a very old genre, and in that genre, he he often quotes, oh, the work of Yuan May or some or earlier figure. He looks back to the past in that genre pretty much. <laughs> but as he moves along with these uh, with a series of publications, he gets somewhat more um, kind of reform minded and starts thinking of ways that the courtesan might not have to do that job at all. Maybe a poor girl could find a way to. He starts talking about maybe other ways that, that she could make make a living for herself and wouldn't have to do this kind of work at all. So he takes on a much more moralistic um, attitude as he moves through the series. But at that time, the other thing that is different about the later series is that he seems to be much less connected to the city of Shanghai as he goes along. We know that from his journalistic career that he went to Beijing during, uh, there was a period he worked in Beijing and then came back. And I think with that kind of community, with the courtesan community, you have to keep in good touch or else you kind of lose your connections. And I think he may have sort of lost his connections as he went along. So the the second and third sets aren't as interesting as the first by, by any means. They're not as, well, let's put it this way. They're not as much in, in the genre, but they're, they tell us maybe they they show us an evolution towards a more reform-minded posture, and they give us they they confirm evidence that we can find elsewhere too that he he wasn't in Beijing excuse me in Shanghai all that time some some time was spent we can we can learn about his comings and goings as we read. Great. Um, and some of the really interesting things, just to kind of um, highlight these that come out of this chapter on courtesan sketches, is that you're showing that in the progression from the earliest to the latest of these um, courtesan sketches that he's doing, he also kind of transforms, uh, what, or there's a transformation in what he's doing from writing what seems like a kind of guidebook for men to writing what's more a kind of a set of object lessons to inspire, inspire gentle women, right? And he starts portraying there is that right. It's like exemplars. That's right. That's right. He starts seeing the courtesan as someone that the gentlewoman, the aspiring gentlewoman, the woman that wants to sort of take her her place on the world stage, might be able to emulate. Particularly toughness and not allowing yourself to be deterred if you're thrown to the ground. Just get back up and keep going. There's that that sentiment comes out. And another thing that you see later on is that he uses more and more of the writings of women. Instead of writing it all himself, he sometimes uses the courtesans, not 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 gentry women, but courtesans, as commentators on the action. And that's that 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 is just kind of creeping in as he goes along. It's 
right. Now, some of these concerns and some of the um, kind of issues and these transformations that come out of the courtesan sketches also come up in his novels. And the chapter um, that follows this chapter five looks very closely at his reformist novels. It puts two um, novels that are actually quite similar in plot, China's New Heroines and Women's Power, into a conversation and juxtaposes them um, at the beginning of the chapter. Um, now, these are uh, really interesting in their own right. They're very similar. Um, you, you talk about some important differences, and we might get to those. But importantly, each one is set in the future, right? Each of these novels is set 40 years in the future. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that future orientation, in part because um, the way that John Kai treats time and space and the way that his brother treats time and space um, in the brother's fiction are actually kind of importantly different. And those differences turn out to have some interesting consequences. So can you talk a little bit about this future orientation in his novels? And um, what else for you, um, if anything, is important for us to, to note about these novels to understand how to position him in this larger story you're telling? Well, he wants to put the novels in the future so that the the evils that the that John Chi talked about in his novel are no longer a factor, and he can concentrate on on bringing sort of education and enlightenment to women rather than overturning old habits like foot binding. Um, and as a result of their future orientation, they they become somewhat utopian. The the women heroines. The, the, it is really odd that that the two novels are so close to one another in theme. But the two, the two women heroines travel around the world and study how foreign countries uh, carry out education for women. And when they get back, they're they're greeted with well, mostly not entirely, but mostly greeted with open arms. And the empress wants to learn from them and establishes um, a way that she can be in touch with these young women and their learning, and maybe even learn to read foreign newspapers. And this is going to be a way that that China's women can move forward. the The brothers' novel was not in not nearly as much focused. Novels were not nearly as much focused on women. They were hardly focused on women at all, and they. Their their setting is in the past. Now, also the so that's time. If we did it space, we would we would see. Then we've already talked about that. John Shi's novel is set in Chuzhou. It it really that's where it takes place. And and there are a few scenes shed, set in Shanghai, but they're not very important at all. Well, they're they're important in a way, but they're the the body of it is set in in Chuzhou. And with John Kai's novel, the setting is is um, it's a little ambiguous, but it's sort of Beijing and then international, and then they both end up in Hanko, which is where he was writing his newspaper articles from. Um, and at the end of both of them, some statues of successful women or maybe martyred women are put up in the city of Hanko. It's that's just the way both of them end. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the really interesting things that happens here is you're showing us the um, and and you also bring another work called Pearls in an Azure Sea into the conversation um, to sort of help understand what's going on in these other two major novels. Um, but you're showing us the similarities and differences um, in these works. Um, 
among the differences are there particular approaches toward um, radical women and radicalism. Uh, China's new heroines, as you show here, uh, includes uh, an assassination and the other one doesn't. Um, and there's also greater emphasis on journalism in women's power. Um, it's, and it's relatively more gradualist. It's less kind of radical than China's new heroines. Right. Um, but there are some important similarities. Both of these works are urging women to take a greater interest in public affairs. Both of them are praising women who are um, strong enough to kind of recover from setbacks. And you've already talked a little bit about that. Both are paying attention to vocational education. So we see education and an interest in educational reform kind of coming out in these works. And both are engaging on some level newspapers um, and newspaper articles as media. And this brings us, this last point brings us into the next chapter and the last chapter that focuses on John Kai. This is a chapter that looks at his work as a journalist. Um, and it in particular focuses on his work writing for newspapers. Um, now, the chapter looks very carefully at the particular kinds of positions um, that John Kai explored as a journalist um, and sort of considers how we might trace these positions, if at all, through his fictional worlds. Um, interestingly, his editorial writings, or at least the ones that we know about, never take up the topic of women. Right. Um, so let's maybe start by talking a little about that. Uh, talking a little bit about that. What kinds of topics is he writing about as a journalist? And can you talk about that? Um, what seems to be a really interesting absence—the fact that he's not actually writing about women um, in his work as a journalist. Here, I think we have to be careful because so we're we're dealing with such a fragile set of of sources that something could easily be missing. But if we, let's just say that he never wrote an editorial on women. Um, there, he's much more focused, what he's really focused on in his editorials is China and China's weakness and how to help China grow so that it becomes strong again. And his methods are different from those of some other people anyway. He's great, he's a big fan of business and business education and making things easy for the business community, not just business education, business journals. He's in favor of those. He's also in favor of having the military uh, supply a ship to, to follow around behind uh, merchant vehicle. Uh, is that what they're called? Merchant boats so that they aren't overtaken by pirates. And, and just to switch back for one second, the, the, the fiance of one of the heroines of one of the two um, forward looking novels, it has the job of, of, of superintending a boat that goes along behind merchant uh, ships. So, I mean, there's always a lot of crossover there, but that kind of thing is of great interest to him. And then he takes, you know, he'll pick up on a, on a, a world development, like the assassination of Ito Hirobumi, that kind of thing, or the uh, start, the shortage of food in uh, in Hanko and Wuhan area around the time of the, of the revolution. But he doesn't take what I, I mean, so far as I can tell, he doesn't take particularly radical positions. It's not as though he's pushing a, uh, a re revolutionary agenda, even though he lives right before the end of the Qing dynasty, right before 1911. He probably dies in 1911. Um, but his, his approach is 
is seems to be gradual rather than radical. When you look at every single fact about him, you note that he did have some very radical friends. And so it's possible he had a sort of split identity. So performing on one level as a more conservative journalist and, and in reality acting more radical. His nephew, John Xi's son, was quite a radical at that time. So I'm not I'm not going to say once and for all that that he wasn't radical, but his writings in newspapers, insofar as I can see what, unless there's some irony that I'm not getting, were were um, were in favor uh, were in favor of bringing constitutional government to China. That was one that one thing in which he greatly believed, but not of overthrowing the Qing. Now, you talk um, in this chapter about the ways that these editorials actually help us understand the novels, right? And you put these into conversation. But at the same time, at the end of this chapter, you also uh, alert us to some potential contradictions that emerge when you put these three types of writings that you write about um, of John Kai side by side. Um, And these include, but maybe aren't limited to, his attitude toward courtesans, his stand on radical politics, and also the way that he presents himself as an author. Um, Now, this becomes really interesting, um, not because um, I think that the book um, suggests that we need to definitely see him as a a fundamentally um, contradictory figure or not, but rather, again, um, in juxtaposing these works and alerting us to at least potential contradictions, what the chapter is doing here and what the book is doing is making another important methodological point. You talk here at the end of this chapter about the ultimate impossibility of extracting, quote, the real John Kai, right, as we we talked about a little bit earlier, from this cache of written materials. I think this is a really, really important historiographical point um, that I think speaks to the work that any of us does um, uh, when we try to write about a single figure as a singularity, right, as an individual. All of us are juxtaposing on some level written materials and trying to extract an individual from it when we're writing about individuals. Um, so here, I think this is a kind of exceptional case that informs um, the norm of what a lot of us do in what seem to be, right, more um, simple cases. Can you talk a little bit about that, um, about just kind of how you feel about that methodological historiographical problem? Because I think it is potentially so important um, to the work of the historian? Well, I, (laughs) you'll be discouraged to hear me say it, but I don't think that I can extract a real person from anything, really. I mean, that's not discouraging. I think that's exciting. And I think that's actually like, I agree with you. (laughs) That's what I think is so exciting about the point that you're making here. I mean, even having coffee with your best friend, you know, and somehow that person might uh, have a change of heart or something the next minute after you've left. I completely (laughs) agree with you. (laughs) I'm totally on board. (laughs) But just to give one tiny example, the two reformist novels that John Kai wrote have some, a few, not very many, but just a few disparaging remarks about courtesans. So they'll laugh at the courtesans for trying to join other women who are talking about independence, about getting independent of men. How, how he laughs, can a courtesan get independent of men? Uh, but he only sort of throws that out for a minute, and I get the impression that he was probably just thinking of his audience as 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 consisting mainly of upper class people and just kind of threw it in. I don't think he 
meant it in a very deep way. Whereas when you look at how much time he spends talking about vocational education for women, he doesn't mention courtesans as the ones that will receive this education, but but he has his heroines spend a lot of time thinking about how to set up schools that would, would help the kind of woman that in his courtesan sketches, we're all becoming courtesans. So I think his heart is with the the effort to bring uh, to make a better life for courtesans, uh, or or else just to let a courtesan be a courtesan and and, and go that way. But um, I think, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that, given what little I know, I think I could I have some ways of resolving the contradictions. I don't just have to throw my hands up and say we can't make sense of this at all. But of course, if I had more material to work with, or uh, if it weren't so remote. I mean, it, the late Qing is kind of remote, one discovers, even though it wasn't all that long ago. But working with it uh, in, in as much as I did gave me some way of getting out of the contradictions that I raised. I'm not saying that I'm right, but I'm saying that there, there are some, some sort of signposts that you can follow. That's right. But I, I think at the same time, by extension, even if you had a billion million other kinds of um, sources right at your fingertips for putting together um, the story that we tell about John Kai or his brother, um, for example, I think the the really profound point um, that we uh, that I think could emerge out of this point that we're talking about, right? Um, you could claim, as, as I would actually, that as historians, we create the individuals that we write about. I think so. Um, I think that's a really, really important point. Um, and um, I think there's uh, there's a lot more to talk about there. And I just want to thank you for that chapter in particular, because I think that's something with potential wide-ranging resonance for conversation um, in a lot of our work, whether or not um, readers work on or are interested in particular on the Qing or fiction um, or China. So as we move toward uh, the end of our interview, we also move toward the end of the book. Um, and this finds us in the final chapter, chapter seven. This is a chapter that, among other things, looks closely at the important differences and similarities in the works of the brothers um, and considers the potential, again, ramifications for this kind of study um, for, you know, understanding um, how and why we might put studies of family and fiction side by side to mutually inform each other. So one of the interesting Interesting things that comes out of this chapter is something that um, you talk about right at the beginning, but we haven't mentioned yet in this conversation, and that is the importance of a particular link between the brothers in the figure Tang Baorong. Okay, um, so let's actually talk about Tang. First of all, who is this person? Why do we need a figure like this to link the brothers? And how does this person serve as this link? Um, so can you tell us a little bit about Tang and the importance of Tang um, to the story that you're telling here in this part of the book? Sure. Um, I, I just thought he, he uh, his work was fairly close to that of John Shi, but his friendship, that the, the demonstrable friendship, brought him close to John Kai. So that's on a very simple level. His, his, John, Tang Baru wrote a novel called Huang Xiu Qiu, which is 1905 to 1907, the same, 1907 being the same time as John Kai's novels. John Shi's were about 10 years, John Shi's one novel was about 10 years earlier. But the, 
unlike Zhang Kai in his novel, um, but like Zhang Xi, uh, Tang Ba Room does deal with foot binding, and it's an important ingredient in his novel. Um, his novel is about a woman who unbound her own feet after dreaming, strangely enough, of Madame Roland, the French um, martyr, uh, who, but every, whom everyone associates with uh, sort of progressiveness and radicalness, even though I found, find it a little hard to do that because she went to the guillotine on behalf of her husband. I thought that was awfully generous of her. But anyway, um, so um, she, this Huang Xiuqiu, the heroine of the novel entitled Huang Xiuqiu, goes, uh, dreams of Madame Roland, unbinds her own feet, and then goes off with her husband together, and they found a, a, a school for women. The husband also founds a school for men. And it just seemed to me that this whole juxtaposition of unbinding feet and founding schools had quite a bit in common with, with what happened in John Xi's life, but not in his novel. In his novel, the bound feet come to an end, but the school that would, would be founded is nowhere to be seen. But in John in Tang Barun, excuse me, in Tang Barun's novel, the two things happen together. So that to me made an, an interesting link. I don't know, well, I don't know whether there was any tie at all to to John Xi, but there's one possible tie uh, in that Tang Baorong's wife is known to have unbound her own feet at the age of 50. We don't know whether she dreamt of Madame Roland the night before or anything, but she's known to have done that. And that was a very unusual thing to do, unbound your own feet at the age of 50. And I think, and there's the tiniest of reasons, but I do think there is a little bit of reason to think that that John Shi might have borrowed that idea um, of uh, of um, that he might have gone from from that fact about Tang Bao Rung to his own way of thinking about foot biting in his novel. So I'm I'm drawing some possible links, but I, I see more links between John Shi and Tang Bao Rung despite their difference in age. But I have a definite biographical link between Tang Bao Rung and John Kai, the younger brother. They worked on they had some friends in common. They had a a connection to a, a certain newspaper, and um, Tang Baorong actually endorsed or, or signed endorsements to one of, um, or two, actually, two of John Kai's coins and sketches. So there's, there's it's, it's an awfully busy picture to try to describe to an outsider, but I, I, I felt that partly because of the age difference between the two brothers, partly because their work seems so different, partly because the mother never writes a single word to John Kai, although the father does, only in his later set of photos, the ones that were never published. It, it was hard, yeah, hard to make a family out of them at all. And my advisor, Professor Hannon, at first didn't believe that they were brothers until I showed him what is what the evidence in the local history. And then he said, okay, I guess you're right, not that. But they are rather slippery as brothers. It's a little hard to put them in the same family basket. And I just felt that having Tang Baorong there helped. I also thought Tang Baorong has a mother that was very important in his life that helped to educate him. And that was somewhat true in of John Shi, his mother, and he were very close. We wrote poems to one another quite a bit. And it was John Shi that helped his mother pu publish in the Shanbao journals. So I felt that a parallel could be drawn. It's not identical at all, but the idea of mothers with strong influences on their sons and the sons going on then to write 
reformist novels in, in that support women, um, maybe that would work. That's all I would say. I won't go any farther. Great. And um, readers will find, or listeners when they become readers, will find lots more detail about this linkage and the um, potential consequences of that linkage when they turn to chapter seven and actually read it as a text. Um, so the chapter closes and the book closes by just echoing something that I think came out of uh, the way you were just talking about Tang and his linkage with the brothers. And that is, it closes with a consideration of why um, we might want to study family and fiction side by side. Um, and I just want to kind of mark that for listeners, again, um, who haven't had a chance to read the book, is that the book is not just about, um, and in its closing, it's not just about these particular figures. Ultimately, on another, on another level, it's also, I think, about what it is we're doing when we study fiction um, and how we might study fiction and use it to inform the way we understand family and other kinds of histories and vice versa. So this is also a book that's about what it is we're doing um, when we read fiction and understand it and, and place it in a, in, um, a historical frame. So Ellen, there's a lot um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about, right? These chapters are full of discussions and treatments of the works that we've only very briefly talked about. They're full of other discussions as well. Um, but given that, is there anything in particular that didn't come up in the context of our conversation, but that you'd like to mention for listeners before we close? Uh, well, I could mention that... I felt as though I was driven to write this book by a mystical force rather than by my advisor or anything that's plausible sounding. And that's only because of a, of a, and you mentioned as we were talking earlier, the cover. I, I happened to have a, a picture of a Shanghai courtesan that was in the family that almost got, almost got thrown out because my relatives didn't really approve of courtesans that I sort of rescued from the trash. And it's quite beautiful. People have, have commented on it. I don't know if you saw, um, Kyle, I don't know if you, whether you saw the, the, the original cover or whether you just saw the coverless version. Oh, but I have it, I have it right here with the green dress and the flowers. Quite, yeah, it's quite, it's quite striking. And I think I had this mystical feeling that maybe she had driven me to write the book, like, you know, apart from anything else we could have pointed to. But that's just, that's a little bit silly. <laughs> no, I think it's, I mean, I think it actually speaks to um, and kind of further evokes one of the major themes in, um, you know, in the book, right, is the, the importance of these linkages. And sometimes you don't, you're not sure um, right. whether it even exists or why, but that doesn't mean that we have to not take it into consideration or we have to ignore it when we're trying to understand the past or understand the story. Or, or even the, just the importance, once again, as you mentioned at the very beginning of sources and um, how, how important they are and how important the absence of them is. Absolutely. <laughs> so now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, and the cover is gorgeous, um, I'll, I'll reiterate that. What's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Oh, uh, these projects uh, These projects take a long, long time to germinate properly in my mind. But I had a sabbatical, not this past year, but the one before, which I, in which I spent a lot of time um, actually still thinking about Huang Xiaoqiu, this novel that we just finished talking about, Tang Barung's novel, among other things. But it led me, strangely, to America, to a woman in America that wrote popular biographies of, of girls and boys. And those biographies made their way 
eventually to China. Uh, and the, I can prove it to uh, their quotations in Huang Xiuqiu from an American writer of the 19th century. And there are other ways that the, that the American writers work ramified into China and into Japan. I'm thinking right now or wondering right now whether missionary interests had any uh, role in this transmission. I'm not sure right now. It's Right now it's kind of a mystery, but that's what I'm working on. <clears throat> well, best of luck with that work, and thanks for taking time away from that to talk about this book with me. Um, th- it's really been a pleasure, and congratulations again. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>